A reading from the book of Ephesians. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. For the remaining weeks of this summer, we're doing a series. So basically, August into early September, we're doing this series based on Paul's letter to the Ephesians entitled, What's So Amazing About Grace? And Ephesians is this letter that is breathtaking in scope about the breadth and the depth and the width and the height of God's grace revealed in Jesus Christ. There's nothing in the world, Ephesians says, that isn't touched by grace. Creation itself is a product of grace. I mean, the answer to the most basic question there is, why is there something rather than nothing? The answer to that question can be, because grace. God didn't have to make anything in order to be God. The universe, our planet, life, human existence is all totally and completely unnecessary from God's perspective. God didn't need any of this to be God. But he did so because he's a God of grace, a God who gratuitously made us for himself. The title for this series, What's So Amazing About Grace, comes from a book that is now 20 years old, uh, written by Philip Yancey. And Yancey's contention is that grace is our last best word. It's the one theological churchy word that hasn't been sullied through misuse or abuse or neglect. It's a word that over the course of the centuries has retained its fundamental goodness. And thank God for that because Christianity would be nothing without grace. His grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Last week, uh, I talked about that what's so amazing about grace is that it means we're chosen to be God's children, and and we're liberated, redeemed to be set free, and we're promised a future that is infused with the grace of God. But in order to fully appreciate grace, we need to compare what we are now to what we were before. And there's nothing like a before and after comparison. 
to help us appreciate just how beautiful and amazing grace is. I admit that I'm, I'm terrible when I'm doing a project at home about remembering to take a before picture. So when I'm in the middle, I'm like, oh, I should have taken a picture of what it looked like before. And while the after picture is usually impressive, it's, it's nothing if we don't to get a sort of apples-to-apples comparison of what came before. You can't get the full effect of the after without the before. And this is an amazingly powerful contrast and paradigm before and after compare. The whole television channel, HGTV, is basically dedicated to hours and hours of programming that are fundamentally a comparison of before and after. The fact that shows like Property Brothers, they can air, you know, season after season, episode after episode, and and they keep their ratings up, and it's just a simple formula, before and after, before and after, before and after. It, It, I think, reveals something about our insatiable human thirst to witness not just improvement, but transformation. We long for transformation in our lives. We, we long to believe that not all change is for the worst, that things can actually get better, right? That run-down shack can become a dream home. That overgrown yard can become a beautiful garden. What's old and dated can become new and fresh. And what's so amazing about grace is that it presents us with the starkest before and after comparison that there is. And the best part about all of it is is that grace is both our hope for transformation and the agent of transformation itself. And so this morning we're going to look at our passage in terms of before grace, after grace, and because of grace. So before grace... But before we get to the before, uh, it's important to take note of something that we we probably don't notice, probably doesn't occur to us when we're reading our New Testaments, but it's everywhere behind the pages. And so one of the biggest theological issues, it's not a pressing theological issue for us in the 21st century, but in the first century, you better believe that it was. And the big, one of the biggest theological questions facing the early church was, what do we do with the Gentiles, non-Jewish people? What do we do with their inclusion into the people of God? Because before Jesus, it was easy for the Jewish people to divide the world. It was us, and it was them. There were Jews and Gentiles. Jews were the chosen people, Gentiles were not. The Jews had the law, the Gentiles did not. The Jews were holy, the Gentiles were not. The Jews were righteous, the Gentiles were wicked. And every day, Pharisees would offer a prayer of thanksgiving to God that they weren't Gentiles. And some rabbis even mused that the reason God had created Gentiles was as fuel to stoke the fires of hell. No love lost. And then Jesus came, and he died, and he rose again, and then at Pentecost, something amazing happened. God's Spirit was poured out on all flesh, Jew and Gentile. And so the question was, well, what does this mean? What do we do about this? Do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be Christians? And so that was one of the pressing theological questions of the early church. And the answer that Jesus and Paul and the other early apostles and pillars of the church gave was a resounding no. 
You don't have to become a Torah, a law-observant Jew to belong to the people of God. What's so amazing about grace is that through Jesus, a new reality has been brought about. It's no longer Jew versus Gentile, but it's Jew plus Gentile in one new family. And that would have been utterly unthinkable before, given the deep enmity between the two groups. That's what's so amazing about grace, but, but I'm getting ahead of myself. And so Paul, he doesn't deny, he doesn't give short shrift to the starry, sorry state of Gentiles before grace. His opening words in verse 11 are, Therefore, remember, don't forget, at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. You can't fully appreciate the transformation that grace brings if you forget who you were before. You can't appreciate the beauty of the after without plumbing the depths of the ugliness of the before. So what were the Gentiles like before? Paul says they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. They they had no relationship with God. But this is the kicker. This is where this is all leading. He says that, that they were without hope and without God in the world. And to be without hope is to be without a future. One of the things that sets biblical religion apart is that it is at its core optimistic. The message of scripture is that all of this is heading somewhere. Right? Existence has a destination. It has a goal. Your life has a purpose. The kingdom of God is one name we give it. Heaven another. It's a future where God will right all wrongs. Where those who have been faithful will be vindicated. Those who have done wrong will be punished. Our our secular notions of progress are really a remaining vestige of this essentially Judeo-Christian idea. Things are going somewhere and they're going to get better eventually. But when Paul's writing this in, in, in the best Greek thought of that time, there wasn't any notion of hope or of optimism embedded within history. In fact, they didn't think about history in terms of, you know, progressing on this line towards God, but instead of this endless cycle of creation, destruction, creation, destruction, creation, destruction. The ancient Stoics believed that history was this series of endless 3,000-year cycles. Everything would be created and then it would be destroyed by fire, wipe everything new. Time is a flat circle. We just keep coming back to where we were before. So what hope could one have in such a hopeless universe? And we have our modern equivalents of this unrelenting hopelessness. Uh, Mike Nelson and I were were, were potting uh, this week, and he shared with me an article that was just published uh, in Psychology Today and has this cheery opening paragraph. Does humanity exist to serve some ultimate transcendent purpose? Conventional scientific wisdom gives the answer as a definitive No. Well, there you have it. Without grace, this is our face. Does your life have transcendent meaning or purpose? Do you exist to serve a cause or a being greater than yourself? Pish, posh. And this author goes on to offer his sort of materialistic answer, which is itself not satisfying. And if you want to know what we think about it, listen to the podcast. So he says, you were without hope. You had no hope, no transcendence beyond yourself. And satisfied, he says, we were, you were without God. 
When the Ephesians heard this, they could have objected, whoa, 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 whoa. Gods, we had plenty of gods. We had, we had a whole pantheon of gods. What do you mean we were without God? And the answer, of course, is that all of these gods were counterfeits. They were, at best, projections of their best hopes for humanity. At worst, these manufactured gods were revelations of the darkness of the human soul, and, and in reality, they were probably some incohate combination of the two. But regardless, until they met Jesus, until grace broke into history, they really didn't know God. Until the light came, they were just stumbling and fumbling in the dark, looking for anything they could cling to that would give them some sense, we're not alone. That there was more to life than merely surviving long enough to have kids in order to pass on our genetic material to the next generation. That's the saddest part about what we were before grace. We were ignorant of God. Ignorant of the God who is perfect beauty, mercy, justice, grace, truth, power, and creativity. We were ignorant of our source. And therefore ignorant of our purpose. So that's the world before grace. BG. No hope. No God. What a sad and sorry state it was. We can't appreciate the beauty of of the after if we don't look at the full ugliness of the before. But what about after grace? What comes after? So before grace, we see that there's this deep hatred and distrust and division that exists between Jew and Gentile. And in addition, we Gentiles have no hope and no God. And there's this wall of hatred, this dividing line of hostility that Paul calls it between Jews and Gentiles. So there's a, a wall of hatred that divides Jews and Jew and Gentile and a wall of ignorance that divides Gentiles from knowledge of God. And after grace, those walls come a-tumbling down. As Paul says, we who were once far off have been brought near. That Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile and has opened wide the door of access to God that had been sealed shut before. So Jesus comes after grace, the wall comes down, the gates to God's throne room are open. And for Paul, this idea of a dividing wall of hostility, it, it was no mere metaphor. Paul wrote Ephesians from a jail cell. He was imprisoned behind walls of hostility. And the reason that Paul was in jail is that he had been accused in Jerusalem of bringing Trophimus, an Ephesian, no less, a Gentile Christian, into the temple, thereby, thereby defiling that holy place. And so if we think of the ancient temple in Jerusalem, it was divided into several courtyards, and so you had varying degrees of access uh, to the most holy place. And so on the outside, on the outskirts of the temple precincts, there's this court of the Gentiles. So basically any person can go there. And then you have the court of the women where female Jews could go. And then the court of the men where male Israelites could go. And then you get to the temple precincts itself. And only the, the priests and Levites could go there. And separating the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women, there was this little half wall 
that actually archaeologists have found. And they found an inscription on it, which could be the very inscription that Paul has in mind. And it was in several languages. And it read, so this is between the court of the Gentiles, where anyone can go, and the court of the women, uh, uh, where you have to be Jewish in order to go beyond this. And it read, let no one of any other nation, a.k.a. no Gentiles, come within the fence and barrier around the holy place. Whosoever will be taken doing so will himself be responsible for the fact that his death will ensue. So right here, this is literally the dividing wall of hostility. A wall that bore the inscription that said any Gentile who violated this boundary would be signing his own death warrant. So Paul is in chains because a mob had arisen who wanted to kill him because of a false accusation that he had led a man to violate this boundary, that he had dared to cross the dividing wall of hostility. But Paul's message is that after grace, this wall has been torn down. It, it doesn't exist anymore. And moreover, God has created one new family from Jew and Gentile. Our translation says that, that God has made one new man in place of the two, but it really should say one new humanity in place of the two. After grace, the the wall of hostility is torn down and these two bitterly divided groups are now actually one new family. And Paul chooses his words very carefully here. This word for new, there's two different words for new in Greek. Uh, There's one neos, we would recognize that of course. It means just made, like a new pencil is one that just came out of the factory or a new computer is one that just came off the assembly line or a new car. It has this temporal sense of newness. And that's not the word Paul uses here. There is another word, kainos, which means qualitatively new in a different sense. New in the sense of something that never existed before. Same word he uses in 2 Corinthians where he says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. So after grace, God does something genuinely new. He takes these two warring factions and makes one new humanity in Christ. The word for what happens after grace is reconciliation. God stops the hatred and the fighting, and he brings peace. And so the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ is one of the greatest and realest signs that we are living in an after-grace, an A-G world. And it doesn't take a, a genius to figure out that after the events of, of yesterday, we need these signs of unity and of reconciliation to demonstrate the power of the gospel to a watching world. And one of the things, actually, that I love so much about what we're doing here at Resurrection Minneapolis, you know, this established Presbyterian congregation, this young covenant church plant doing cooperative ministry, is that it it boggles the mind in many ways. But I think in, in good ways. Because people like lines, they like walls, they like the clarity that that brings. Especially, you know, denominational officials like that, because they dedicate their lives to making sure that those lines are drawn in ink. But here we are saying that both communities, because we believe in the reality of grace, we believe that Christ changes everything. And so when he is at the center, there's no reason that we can't worship and work together just as much as it makes sense to do. And we believe that when we see good fruit 
We ought to thank God and continue seeking his will and continue living from our blessed unity as a witness to the reality of the power of grace. So then cooperative ministry is not a bug, it's a a feature. It's not something you're embarrassed or sheepish about. Instead, it's part of the pride that we have because we belong to Christ. And so we belong to each other. And in a powerful and unique way, we get to witness together to the ability of Christ to tear down dividing walls of hostility. Walls that divide ostensibly Christian denominations from one another are no less of a scandal because we've been living with them for several hundred years. Disunity in Christ is not normal. It is a scandal. It is a sign we are living before rather than after grace. And if we're living under grace, we cannot unquestioningly accept walls. One urgent mission in our post-Christian moment is to tear them down. Because grace demands it, and we need allies as we fight to maintain and advance a vibrant gospel witness. And I I really think it is a, a sign of our human tendency, our propensity towards sin, that we prefer division to addition when it comes to community. And I'm married to a math teacher, and so I can say with confidence that division is actually harder in terms of math than addition, right? I I mean, we teach kids to add before we teach them to divide for a reason. And that's a lesson that the church needs to learn again and again as we think about what it means to live in an after-grace world. To live under grace, right, is to live under the plus sign, the sign of the cross, rather than the division sign, which is itself a wall between the two numbers. Before grace, we were divided. After grace, we're one new humanity in Christ Jesus. Before grace, we were without hope and without God. And after grace, through Christ, we have access to the Father in one spirit or by one spirit. Before grace, the the doors to God's throne room were shut. We couldn't access it. And after grace, we have access, walk-in privileges to the very presence of God. That's what that word means in verse 18 where it says access. It means you're granted, you're granted permission to enter the presence of a king whenever you want to. That's where it came from. You, the word access is the word for the title of a person who was kind of like operated as the ancient chief of staff. They were the people who would usher you in to see the king. There was, you know, a lot of turmoil in, in the White House recently, and so they changed the, the chief of staff. The one resigned, another took his new place. And one of the consistent things they said is there was too much access to the president. So the new chief of staff's job is to let the right people in and keep the wrong people out. And the old one, he couldn't control access. So the new one, he's going to be much, much better at controlling access, walk-in access to the Oval Office. And you'll know that the new chief of staff is doing a better job if fewer people have access to the executive, to the president. The chief of staff's job is to keep people out, to limit and deny access. And the exact opposite is true of our reality after grace. After grace, it means that we have, through Jesus, unlimited access to the Father by one Spirit. And so we can think about it like this. If the Holy Spirit is the divine chief of staff, it's his job to grant more and more people free and unlimited access to the Father. Think about that. We can just barge in on God whenever we want to. That 
If we want to pray, bow your head. Let it fly. Right? If you need something, you can ask for it. If you're scared or mad or sorrowful or overjoyed or overwhelmed or grateful, just cry out, God is listening. It's ridiculous the level of access we are granted by the God of the universe. Before grace, it's this different situation. The temple exists to separate the sacred and the profane, the people and God. It was a sign of God's presence, but at the same time, a sign of God's distance. Only the priest could enter the temple, and only the high priest could enter the most holy place on the Day of Atonement once a year. That was before grace. Now, after grace, we all have access, free and unfettered, to the place where before only one priest could go once a year. That's what's so amazing about grace. So that's after grace and then before grace. But the last question is, how is that possible? And the answer is, because of grace. That's how the transformation happened. That Jesus made peace through the cross. We who were far off, Paul says, were brought near by the blood of Christ. A divided humanity was reconciled to God in one body through the cross. Christ preached peace and he died to bring peace. When he died, what happened in the temple? The veil was torn in two. The veil that divided the most holy place that kept it separate was torn right down the middle so that we might have unfettered access to God. Jesus, who lived a life of perfect obedience to the law, the law that divided Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised. He perfectly fulfilled the law in order, as it says in verse 15, to abolish it. Jesus' life fulfilled the law and his death abolished its power over us. It's not saying that the law was bad, but that its place was in the world before grace, not after. And the word abolish here, you know, we think of destroy or smash, but it actually means something more akin to like when all the nutrients are used up in the soil. Or when a law is nullified because the circumstances which it applied before no longer do, like how laws concerning marriage don't apply once your spouse has passed away. So before Christ, the law had its place and role, and after grace, that role is now fulfilled by Christ. So he is our peace who has broken down every wall. And one very practical way that Jesus is our peace is that he is the one who reconciles us despite our divisions, that that we all look to him as our Lord and Savior. We might hate each other, but we love him. We might not want nothing to do with each other, but we want to be close to him. And by drawing us to himself, he draws us closer and closer to one another, sometimes kicking and screaming. So Jesus tears down the walls that divide. But ironically, the last thing that living after grace means is that we become a part of another building project. Jesus tears down one wall only to build others. And the difference is that before these walls were built to divide, but now these walls we're a part of are built to contain. With Christ as our foundation, we, along with our brothers and sisters of every tongue and tribe and nation, are being built together into this new temple, a new place where God's presence will dwell. In this building project, God is building us together by his spirit 
so that it will be a, a, a dwelling place for himself. That's what's so amazing about grace. Before grace, we had nothing. We were nothing. And after grace, we have everything. We become everything. And we didn't do this. We didn't deserve this. But we are what we are because Christ, because grace has made us this way. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please pray with me.